Welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast. Today we have on the show uh, Seth Levine from Foundry Group, uh, along with my co-host uh, Mike Klein from Crypto Bull Capital. And uh, welcome, welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome to join us. We're really leaning into legacy here by having the old guy. In. I, like, I like it. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. No, thanks for having me. This is yeah, great. excited to have you on. Um, so one of the first things that we talk about on the show, we teach credited uh, business owners. Uh, about alternative asset funds. What should they, you know, if they're thinking about investing uh, across uh, different funds, you know, whether it's oil and gas, real estate, or venture capital, um, we're here to educate them about that asset class. So to start off, tell us a little bit about venture capital and what can you expect about the asset class. Get us excited about investing in venture capital. Why should you have venture as part of your alternatives portfolio? Exactly. Yeah. And, and for that matter, maybe backing up, like why should you have alternatives as part of your portfolio? Oh, I like that. I love yeah, that. Let's I, mean, I think it's part of any balanced portfolio, right? You, you And obviously it depends a little bit on, it, the allocations depend on what your goals are, how old you are, how much capital you have. Um, but you want you want to think about assets in different buckets, right? So there's there are plenty of safety assets, right? Treasury bills, corporate bonds, things like that. And then it ladders, ladders I guess, up in terms of risk um, to equities. And then there's international equities, things like that. And then eventually you get to privates, um, which in theory should have a higher potential return, but are higher risk assets. And in any balanced portfolio, there should be some allocation to uh, privates, right? If you if you look at, for example, if you look at like any endowment out there, right? Any big pool of capital, there'll be usually somewhere between 15 and 30% of an allocation to private assets, right? The benefit of private assets is they have the potential of much higher return, um, but the challenge is that they tend to be a little bit riskier. So you want to, and we'll talk about time diversifying, but you want to be methodical in investing in those types of assets. And then your money is, is locked up, right? So if I'm invested in a stock and I need uh, that money back tomorrow and it's a public stock, I can, I can go on to E-Trade or you know, whatever my platform is, I can sell it and I, can, I have the cash, right? If you're in a private uh, enterprise, a PE firm, or an individual company, or a venture capital firm, real estate fund, whatever, that's that's a private fund, um, your money doesn't come back uh, as easily, right? I, I have no way, it's not even like a mutual fund where I can still redeem it. Um, my money's locked up until it gets sent back. And so I think that trade-off that you're making of liquidity and a little bit more risk is more upside and more upside potential. But that's why that's why it's not 100% of someone's portfolio, because you need liquidity and you need safety and you need some risk risk adjusted, adjustment. Um, but it's why it should be a meaningful percentage of most people's portfolio. So if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, the way you think about this is that they're a little bit riskier, but for that you should be getting a higher return. Exactly. And uh, that's, that's why you're investing. In these. Absolutely. And that's why, and again, if you just sort of go back, if you think about it from the endowment world perspective, like people who are professionals at this, that's exactly why they have allocations to different asset classes. Um, and one of the things that happens is that you want to balance uh, asset classes where when one is going up, maybe another one's not doing as well. But when public equities, for example, aren't doing as well, perhaps other asset classes are doing better. And so one of the reasons that you diversify into other asset classes is to also have a portfolio that will do well in different types of market environments so that you're not, it's not feast or famine across your entire portfolio. That's super helpful. And let's talk about Seth, like why does venture capital exist in general. And then I know, you know, for our listeners, there's, there's early stage, there's, there's late stage, there's kind of an in-between. Talk to us about the nuances there. Yeah. So first let's just talk about what is venture capital. And then I want to differentiate it with private equity. Sure. So venture, venture capital is an asset class, 
that involves investing in earlier businesses, right? So that could be anywhere from uh, two people in a business idea or one person in a business idea, um, all the way to companies that have real revenue and and uh, product in the market, but aren't so far along that they are typically cash flow positive, for example, right? That, that's when you start to get into the world of private equity. Uh, private equity is more of like financial engineering, financial investing. Uh, venture capital is really more about investing in um, massive potential growth ideas, but where they're still at the nascent stage, right? There's not a, someone, some, sometimes people ask me like, how much math is involved in your business as a VC? And the truth is, especially at the earlier stage, not a lot of math, right? It's a lot about, do you believe in the team? Do you, do you see this market moving in a certain way? And do you think that there's an opportunity to build a massive business here? There's typically not a lot of historical financials, for example, to analyze in contrast to private equity, where you might be looking at businesses that have been in operation for seven, 10 years, tons of financials to look at. And then you're talking about where do you sit in the capital stack? And can I can I lever this company up? Meaning, can I, can I put some debt on the business as well and de-risk my equity investment? That's a slightly different asset class, also still part of the alternative asset class, but venture is really about those kind of like nascent companies. And it exists because it really fuels the innovation economy. Most companies don't take money from, from either PE or venture capital, right? I mean, you walk down the street, most of the businesses that are there um, likely didn't take money from a venture capitalist. Uh, only about 1% of companies in the United, in the United States take money from VCs. Um, but it's a lot of money and those companies drive a huge amount of innovation in our economy. And so if you're taking a bet that requires, for example, a lot of um, product development before you can get into market and sell it, uh, if you uh, need the connections that, um, that VCs give you, if you need the acceleration of growth for marketing and other things like that, those are the types of businesses that come and, and uh, take money from venture. And, and of course, your listeners will be very familiar with all sorts of businesses that were venture-backed. If you think about uh, Uber uh, for getting around or Airbnb for staying, uh, you know, staying in, in other people's places, um, from from Google to uh, to Microsoft to all sorts of businesses, um, these were all at one point venture-backed businesses. Yeah, that's super helpful. And actually, I think case studies and examples are really really helpful for the audience. So, like on that note, like you know, let's let's create a, an alternative universe maybe in the moment where. We, we give an example if Uber hadn't raised venture capital, right? How different would that story look like? Just to kind of contrast how important venture capital is in the growth of some of these companies that everybody knows and are big names. Absolutely. Let, let me take Google as a slightly different example, just because it's so profitable today. Sure. Um, Google is a massive business, right? It's worth nearly a trillion dollars, uh, or at least it was at its height. Um, <laughs> and um, Google would just quite simply not exist without venture capital. There is no way that they could have hired the engineers that they needed to hire and built out the initial algorithm that became Google, right? It came out of Stanford, but they then needed to figure out how to productize this, this initial idea. There's no way they could have built that without the help of venture capital. And there are tons of companies like that. And that's why venture plays such a special role in our economy, because it's the catalyst at the earliest stages to help these companies um, grow and grow potentially really, really large. And Google, I don't know what the exact number is for Google, but they lost tens and tens of millions of dollars before they became profitable. But now they're wildly profitable, right? And that's, of course, what you're looking for. Amazon is another example, right? Also venture-backed, could not have gotten off the ground without the help of venture capital. Yeah, I think that's like an important you know, point is that most businesses can, you know, and I think this is intuitive, they can only, gr they can't go negative. They can only grow um, 
they're limited by how much income they bring in. And that's really a disadvantage if you're trying to do something really big. Absolutely. Or that, again, or that requires a huge amount of product work before you can get into the market. Right. So let's talk about the venture asset class. What's unique about it? What's special? Um, why venture um, should should people consider venture in their portfolio? Yeah. So so venture is a I think is a critical part of anyone's portfolio. Um, and again, we're in now we're in the private bucket. So your your allocation of privates. Um, and there are a couple different different things that you should think about in your private bucket, but but venture is absolutely one of them. Um, there are very few other types of investments that have the potential for so much upside um that's essentially unbounded, right? Mm-hmm. And so um unlike US equities, right? I mean, you can be in a stock that does really well, but you you if you make a couple times your money, like that's a really, that's a great performing stock. Sure. Um, but in venture and in the venture asset class, and especially at the earliest stages, um, there is an opportunity to, to invest in funds where you might make certainly three times, but maybe five times or even seven, eight, nine, 10 times your money back. Um, and so that in a portfolio, that, again, that's balanced, you want some opportunities that are big swings. And there's risk, as we talked about, associated with with that opportunity potential. Um, but you want to expose yourself to the potential to make meaningful returns where you can turn your 100000 or your million-dollar investment into a million dollars or $10 million. Yeah. And that's why venture is so important because there really, there really aren't other asset classes that have that potential for upside. And what are kind of the differences? Like if 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 an LP like Pascal said, oh, okay, I, now I want to like double down on venture. I'm really excited about it. Um, how do you go about like what are the differentiations between different funds and their strategies? And like, you know, I think in, in venture, it's like, you know, the stages essentially. Absolutely. Well, so I, th- I think even before that, you need to think about sort of what's your time diversification. I think the mistake that some people make is, you know, maybe they're listening to this, or, great, I'm all in venture, right? right? If you've got $5 million to invent, invest in venture, don't put it in in one year, right? You want to have a little bit of, of what we call vintage diversification, which is just a fancier way of saying time diversification. Um, And the reason is because um, the markets for venture ebb and flow, right? Pricing ebbs and flows for what what we as venture capitalists have to pay to get into businesses. The exit horizons ebb and flow a little bit. And so because of that, you want to hedge your risk a little bit by being methodical about investing over time. Um, And and actually, we're at a really interesting time as we're recording this. It's, It's uh, sort of early 2023, and the markets have been down, and a lot of people are pulling out of venture. And I, I keep telling people like, that, no, that's, that's exactly wrong. when you should be investing. <laughs> is when the markets are low. Now is when you want to be investing in venture. Pascal's got it exactly yeah. right. And people often do it backwards, right? When the markets are hot, they get all excited about it, and that's when they put money in, and then they stop investing when the markets come down. But in, in venture, and you have to. Re- you have to remember that the average venture investment is lasts somewhere between seven and 10 years. So the, the money that is being invested today in companies won't come back in all likelihood, meaning won't be returned for seven or 10 years. So w- what we care about is what did we have to pay today to get in and what is it worth seven or 10 years from now in some, in some window in the future? And so I'd rather be putting my money in now when the markets are down and I can get a better deal and companies are being more careful with cash and they're making more progress on less money. Now's a great time to be investing in venture. So the, within venture, there are, so definitely time diversify, but now's a good time. Um, but within venture, there are different types of, of VCs, right? Who specialize, first of all, they specialize in different sectors. And so you may have a particular affinity to uh, biotech or pharma or something like that, or to early stage technology businesses or to a particular region, right? There's 
There are venture capital funds all over the world. I spent my morning this morning talking with a bunch of VCs uh, in and around Africa. And then the next call I had was a VC that's based in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And, you know, and, and then my afternoon will be spent with U.S.-based VCs. So there's all sorts of stuff. Um, and so, you know, part of part of this is just a personal preference. If you have a, an affinity towards a specific market or if you have a, an affinity towards a, uh, a specific vertical, there are funds that specialize in that. Sometimes that's a really nice way for people to choose uh, a set of funds that they work in. Again, you're going to hear me say the word diversify a bunch of times. You should diversify when you get into venture. You don't want to plow all your money in one year into one fund, right? You want to pick a, a handful of funds um, and you want to put the money in over a period of years. Um, but anyways, within venture, there's also stage diversification. So there are some funds that are tend to be a little bit smaller that invest in what we call seed stage companies. Now we're talking about two, two people and their idea. Um, very, very earliest stages. There are other uh, venture investors that invest a little bit later than that. So we conveniently letter them. So it's easy to, <laughs> easy to tell how, uh, uh, how far along a business is, uh, at least in terms of their financing rounds. Um, but uh, there are series A investors. And so those are investors that invest in companies whose product is already in the market, who have a little bit of data about product, what we call product market fit, right? Do customers wanna buy what you've already produced? Um, so there's a bunch of funds that specialize in that. There are, you can add to your letters to it, right? There's series B, C investors who are a little bit later than that. So those might be companies that have $10 million worth of revenue. Um, and so there's a bunch more information there, but they're looking to scale up a little bit more. And then there's growth stage that's still venture. So growth venture investing, um, which typically are companies that maybe are in the sort of 25 to $70 million range. Um, so still a little bit early for private equity. And they're not what we might consider to be pre-IPO, which is, sort of company on a track to go IPO in the next, meaning uh, list their their stock on a public exchange within the next sort of 12 to 18 months. Um, and that's still considered venture. So that's a pretty wide, wide swath, right? So it's worth thinking about and talking to people like you guys about what makes sense uh, for investment because venture means two people in a business plan all the way up to a company that might have, you know, 300 employees and $60, $60 million worth of revenue. And how what, do, what, what point does that become? Where is that line between venture capital and private equity? Because like, I mean, I've seen series D, series E, you know, rounds. How does, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a very blurry line for starters, Pascal, but it's also, it depends a little bit on the form of the investment. So private equity investors, not, not exclusively, but often want to take a control position. So they want to buy 51% of a company or more, right? In some cases, they buy 75, 80, 90, 100% of a company. Um, and that's not the venture model, right? So one of the ways you differentiate, differentiate between private equity and venture is, are they minority investments? Are they mm. not passive necessarily? Because many times venture capitalists take board seats. I'm sure we'll talk about how VCs kind of manage their portfolios. Um, so they're active in the portfolios, but they don't control the, control the business. Whereas most private equity firms want to have that control. So they may have two or three board members. Uh, and again, they would typically own, most typically own more than 50% of a business. And then, and then, you know, putting my LP hat on at what, uh, how much of my investable capital should I start thinking about VC? You know, I think, and maybe it depends on what industry you come from, but I think at least the circles that I'm in, it, people primarily go into some sort of real estate funds first. Uh, do you, you know, is it like, you know, once you have 500K to start investing in funds that, you know, 50K should go to VC or, you know, how, how do you think about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you're, and again, it's it's hard to generalize because it depends a little bit on everyone's specific situation. Um, but generally, I would say that uh, round numbers somewhere in the third of your portfolio of total assets should be in privates of some kind. Um, and probably about a third of that should be in venture is kind of how I rough math just because it's easy to remember a yeah, third yeah, and a yeah. third, right? So um, when you get below about 15% of your total assets, even if you have a great outcome in venture, it's not enough to affect your overall uh, sort of portfolio. And so it's kind of not worth it. Like if you're going to go in for a penny and, you know, in for a, in for a dollar, like if you're going to do it, you should do it. Um, so it needs to be a meaningful amount of money. And the same thing is true within that, within that privates bucket. If you're going to be in venture, it has to be enough money to actually matter. And so I think a balanced portfolio where, and again, it, it depends a little bit on what your preferences are, but where a, a, of your portfolio, call it a third in privates and of your privates, a third is in venture, maybe a third-ish is in in uh, private equity. And then if you're interested in real estate or, it dep again, depends on what, yeah, your, depends on, what yeah. your goals are, but you know, if you, you're looking for inflation hedge, right? I mean, typically real estate would be a good, good yeah. way of doing that. So somewhere around a third would be in other things, right? That could be real estate, it could be timber, it could be natural, natural gas. I and mean, there's all sorts of other products that are out there that look a little bit like venture in the sense that there are funds where your money is a little bit more locked up um, and that have the potential for higher returns. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to I just reflect on what you said, the difference between venture and private equity. I always thought of the two differentiations between those um, is that in, in venture, you're really betting on the team first. And in private equity, you're kind of betting on the business in the sense of you're thinking I can inject my own team in it. And I mean, this is maybe a good portion to move towards what it takes to be a venture capitalist and what it takes to invest in this space, in the startup space um, professionally, because um, I think there's a lot of upwork front you have to really do because of the illiquidity of the investment and the fact you're along for the ride, essentially, once you invest. Yeah. And it's, and the thing that, so I, first of all, I think the way you characterize the difference is, is right. I think that's exactly right. In venture, we, we first look at the team, although I don't like it when people say, which is, you know, which, which is more important to you team or idea. I'm like, I, I want to invest in the, at yeah. the intersection <laughs> of good team and good idea. Right. Of course. With the understanding that sometimes what seemed like a good idea isn't. And if you have a good team, they can the word we use is pivot, but you know they can change their their view. And there, by the way, there's a bunch of very famous examples of companies that started out doing one thing and became very successful doing another thing, and that's a testament to their team. Sure, but ideally, you get both, right? And that's yep. the that's the quadrant we try to play in. Um, but uh, as I think about, um, sorry, you're gonna have to say your question again. Well, I'm just <laughs> I saying, started, let's went off on a tangent. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> uh, well, we we're here for tangents. Um, <laughs> As we're transitioning sure to what does it take to do this job oh, professionally, right? right, right. right? So, I mean, there's a lot of people, you know, angels that try to do this themselves. And, you know, what we like to do on the podcast is, you know, we find that investors often think I could do this myself. Maybe they don't know about funds or maybe they're unaware of all what it takes to really do it professionally, like yeah. to really achieve those high quartile returns. So let's talk about it. I, I mean, look, I think if people are interested in being doing angel investments, I think that's great. You pick an amount of money you're happy to lose all of and do it. Yep. Right. And spread again, you want to spread it out. You want to do it over a few years. You want to, you don't yet. So you don't want to concentrate it. Um, but it needs to be an amount of money that if it just went away, you'd be happy with that. Because sure. the truth is um, 66% of, of venture rounds, not companies, but venture rounds fail to return the capital that was invested in. And there's only about 0.1% of, of venture rounds. So invest investment rounds that return more than 20 X. Um, so if you're doing it on your own, you need to either make a huge number of bets, 
get very lucky, which is a great strategy too, um, you know, or be comfortable losing that money. And I, and I say this to people all the time and I mean it very sincerely. Like I sometimes do angel investing on the side and that's kind of my mentality. And I've, you know, and I'm a professional investor. I've done pretty well on my angel investments. Um, most of which are outside of venture, of course, cause I can't have a conflict with my fund, but, um, but that I consider sort of like play money. And I think that that's the right advice to someone. If you're doing this seriously, if you're allocating 30% of your, uh, of your asset base, to alternatives and 30% of that to venture, then, then you want someone to do it professionally. There was, when I got into venture, which is 20, 22 years ago now, um, there was an adage that's, it's a little bit of a cliche. I don't really believe it in the extreme, um, but it, it, the adage was it takes $40 million to train a venture capitalist. And what, what was meant by that was you will lose $40 million before you figure out how to actually be a decent professional investor. Mm. That might be a little bit extreme. I don't think the number is is that high, um, but there is a real learning curve that's meaningful, right? And that's why certainly partnership matters, right? So uh, you know, I would hope for my younger partners that we can help them avoid uh, those mistakes. I, I had a partner in a guy named Brad Feld who helped train me and I didn't take me $40 million, I think in large part because of Brad. So there's definitely some benefit to that. But if you're out there doing it on your own, you should expect to lose a bunch of money before you figure out what you're doing, right? Yeah. Otherwise, you're getting you're getting lucky. Yeah. Um, and again, there's nothing wrong with luck, but luck, it, luck is a hard strategy to bet on. So that's how I think about um, sort of the challenge of becoming a venture capitalist because there's a lot of nuance. And we're, by the way, we're living through this right now. Again, I'm going to say some things that make me sound very old, but <laughs> the truth is there are a lot of venture investors out there that have never lived through a down cycle. Right. Ever, right? Because the last down cycle we had was 2008, 2009. That was a while ago. Right. And there are a lot of people that have gotten into venture as venture managers in the last 14 years or into business for that matter in the last 14 years. If you graduated from college in, you know, and you were 22, 21 years old, um, so that was 14 years ago. So you might be 36, 37 years old and you still never in business have never lived through a downturn. Um, and I think, and we can, we're watching this happen, right? So in this case, it's my third downturn in venture and my fourth downturn since I've been in business. Like it's just, there's just a difference between managing in an up market and managing in a down market. And I think there are a lot of VCs that are learning that uh, sort of the challenging way. Now at Foundry, we also invest in other venture funds. So we invest in funds and we invest in companies. And so we're trying to provide that, um, that background, that uh, help to our, uh, not just our portfolio companies, but also to our portfolio of funds to help them navigate what is for many of them, because the funds we invest in tend to be smaller, uh, and they tend to be fund managers that are, you know, on their first, second, maybe third funds. Um, and so they haven't necessarily lived through a downturn. So we're trying to help them figure out, like, what does that mean? But, you know, being a VC, it sounds sexy and fun, but, I, I, you know, I really, and if you spent a day with a VC, I think you'd, you would find that it's maybe uh, maybe less, less party all the time, right? Yeah. And, and a lot of hard work. Um, and uh, it's certainly pre-COVID, it was a lot of running around the country and like really, like, like, not just trying to find good deals, but then determining whether you like the team, whether you think the the market's interesting, et cetera. And I think these are all things that VCs do all day long. And it's just not possible to do that as a side hobby. So again, spend if you got a big enough portfolio and you're interested in it, take a million bucks sure. and spread it out uh, you know, across 15 companies and make some angel investments. That's awesome. But just be comfortable that, that you may lose that million dollars, right? Now, if you're investing a investing million dollars in a couple of venture funds, you should not expect to lose that money, right? And I think that's maybe the difference between people who, or the advice I give to people who want to do angel investing versus 
uh, doing fund investing. By the way, most of those people won't lose a million dollars, right? I'm not suggesting that's that's you know that that's that you'll get some of some capital back. But you know, if you're investing in the wrong markets or you're you just get unlucky or something like that, I'm gonna have tons of acquaintances or friends that have put money into a number of startups, and you know they invested in eight. It's not an unreasonable expectation that eight startups don't work. Right. Statistically speaking, um, statistically speaking, likely. you wouldn't expect to have a 20x in that, right? right? You certainly wouldn't expect to have a 10x in that. Um, and so um, so that has absolutely happened to many people I know. And so, you know, that's why I think you want to balance your exposure, have fun with your your uh, your personal investing and your angel investing. But in terms of like thinking about capital appreciation, you know, that bucket should go to professional investors. Let's, let's trade some war stories because $40 million is a lot of value, Seth. What are some, <laughs> what are some lessons? What are some of those lessons that sit in those, those, those $40 million learnings that a lot of early VCs go through? Well, I mean, I think a lot of people are learning in this market is that unit economics matter. And I, I mean, I never thought that they didn't matter, but for some reason, as an asset class, venture capitalists, we, you know, we, we pushed for growth for a period of time through, you know, sort of 2019 in particular through 2021, early 2021, um, at sometimes to the exclusion of unit economics. And I think a lot of people are coming back to fundamentals and, and to basics, right? And when you're saying but unit economics, what, what do you How much do you does it cost it? you to acquire a customer? How much does that customer provide you in not even just revenue, but contribution margin? Like that's like, this is the nuts and bolts of a building a business. Now, I imagine many of your listeners created their wealth by running some sort of business. So this, they'll appreciate uh, this approach, but, but sometimes that's forgotten, right? And there's also a lot of nuance to um, how much money can you burn during what period of time relative to how fast you're growing, relative to your unit economics, relative to your ability to raise the next round of capital, right? And, and right. there's a lot of um, sort of challenges with that. And then there's a lot to be learned in terms of just how to establish relationships with downstream capital providers so that your companies can get that next round. Not to mention everything on the front end that goes into how do I choose an investment that I think is a good investment? Because at the end of the day, the most important thing you do as a VC is you choose what companies and what people to invest in. And there are just a lot of mistakes that are, are easy to make, especially when you're early on in your career. Um, we sort of, we sometimes joke, we have, we have a couple of more junior folks on our team. It's easy for them to get to like everything, right? Everything sounds really interesting. I remember this when I was a, a newly minted associate 21 years ago, 22 years ago. And, you know, the first thing I saw, I was like, wow, this sounds great. And then I took another meeting that afternoon. Wow, this sounds really good too. And it just takes some time to actually hone in on what makes a really interesting business and what do you have to believe in order for it to believe to be a really successful company? And, and um, there's some amount of uh, you and I can have a conversation about it and I can try to explain what that is. Um, but there's a lot of sort of history and seeing what really worked. And one of the challenges in terms of, of being successful adventure is I talked about this earlier, but there's typically a seven to 10 year turnaround time between when you initially invest in a company and when you might get your capital back. Um, and the result of that is there's this massive lag between making the investment decision and then understanding whether it was a successful investment or not. And there's so many twists and turns in, the, in, in between, right? It's, it's so common that a uh, company will either look like it's incredibly successful and then hit some sort of roadblock and, and struggle or really struggle to find that product market fit but eventually find it and then take off. And we have examples of both. Um, and we have lots of examples of companies that never took off and didn't do well, right? So, and understanding the nuance and the difference between each, it's just hard to do without having seen 
N number where N is just a really big number. Sure. Yeah. I was always, I was always amazed when I was a VC um, about how there was probably like very light diligence among newer VCs and startups in the sense of planning for the next round, because, you know, the analogy I would use is you're, you're going in the desert, you can't get water for 200 miles, but you only have enough gas for a hundred miles. And it was like very intuitive to do a lot of diligence around what is required for the next round and how do you make sure that's successful? Because otherwise you're kind of dead in the water, right? You you run out of money. Yeah. Stuck in the sand. Yeah. To keep with your analogy. No, that's absolutely true. And I, you know, I think when when the markets were a little more go-go, I think that that people sometimes forgot about about asking themselves that question. How much gas do we have in the car? Sure. Um, and and where do we need to get to in order to feel comfortable raising that next round? And, you know, at the end of the day, VCs, you know, I mean, I, I sit on boards. I um, obviously I'm an advisor to a lot of CEOs, but I'm really that I'm an advisor. Right, I influence by 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 influencing. Right, I affect right. outcomes. I should say by influencing, um, and and I think that that's sometimes an art that that particularly newer VCs maybe haven't kind of picked up on completely yet. Um, and I think and and by the way, I think people trying to do this on their own sort of don't have that at all. Right, right. Um, and and that's really sort of our superpower at the end of the day is being able to work with with founding teams and give them, give them the right advice. Right? right. And at the end of the day though, they run their businesses. Right. I and mean, we can ultimately the board can hire and fire a CEO. Um, but that's really our only power. If we don't agree with the direction of the company, really our power comes from our ability to influence. And I think that that's something that, um, it's just important to understand. And I think that's an important nuance between being an angel and investing in a fund because most funds have a voice at yeah. least to be heard. Right. At least I have advice to give, uh, you know, I, I have an ear to speak into where angels really don't, they're not able to do that. I've seen angels get really frustrated. You know, they'll write a 50000 or $100,000 check and they'll, you know, want to be on the phone with the CEO constantly and tell them how they think they should run the business. Like, let's try. It's probably not going to happen. Yeah. No, I think that's a really important difference, right? And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I sometimes say this explicitly to CEOs, like, look, you don't have to agree with me, but you have to listen to me, right? So, I, you know, you have to give me an opportunity to share an opinion, and then you can go make your 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 decision. I, and I, by the way, I say this in board meetings sometimes because sometimes other VCs forget that they are uh, maybe not decision makers. But you know, I'll ask a CEO: Are we having a discussion topic, or are we having a decision topic? Like, are you asking mm, for input? I like that. Um, and most topics are just discussion topics, right? You're asking for input, and then I would suggest you go talk about it with your management team, and then you guys decide what to do based on input. And oftentimes, the board's not in total agreement, so there's plenty of uh, plenty of reasons why CEOs should take it as input, but not as as decisions. And then occasionally something comes up where either it really is a decision that the board has to make because the board has to vote on it, or the CEO says, look, this is so important. I actually want us to be all aligned on this. I'm not going to make it on my own. I'm going to, we're going to make this together. And I think differentiating between those two types of, of discussions is really important. And I think you're really good, Seth, just to, I mean, we've known each other for a long time. I think you're really good at not taking it personally when you make a recommendation or ask for advice, but it's not taken. And I think there are a lot of, you know, newer or immature VCs that do take it very personally. Strong, we, we describe this at Foundry as, uh, you know, strong opinions loosely held. Sometimes it takes me a minute because I, you know, I've, I, I like to think about it. It's very common a CEO will ask me something and I'll say, hey, just give me a second or, or even, you know what, let me give you my gut reaction, but I want to sleep on it. And, and, you know, let's talk tomorrow. Um, but I think it's really important in the venture business to 
exactly as you said, to be able to um, to provide that opinion, and, and, but then understand that you're not the decision maker. And um, and I'm often I often have a gut reaction to something, but then ask for more data, and then I come back with a different view. Um, yeah. and I think it's really important to be able to do that. Can you can you highlight a little bit more? <clears throat> so I'm gonna I'm gonna go basic here and say okay. it's like okay. Uh, Seth, it looks like you talk to a bunch of companies and, you know, you sit on some boards and you give them some advice. Like, it <clears throat> sounds like something I could do, you know, like, yeah. how do I know if the advice you're giving is sound? Like you've been doing this for a while, but just because you've been doing it for a while doesn't mean you're good at it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess we could maybe look at your venture returns. <laughs> I've and, been doing and, it long enough that I do have a yeah, track record. Yeah, so, right? so, so we could look at your track record, but, but, you know, maybe go into a little bit more detail of. Cool. You're on. You're on the phone. You're advising. You're advising companies. Uh, what is What does the team makeup look like? Like, how many deals are you guys looking at? Um, how many of those do you do deeper due diligence? What does that due diligence look like? Are you like meeting with ten percent of the deals that you come across every year? Like, I want you to dive into or give more color to how much work. There is. Yeah. The, uh, and, and by the way, I should say, Pascal, that, that one of the items in due diligence for a venture fund, and this is really what you guys do, right? It's not, this is not the underlying fund investors that do this, but, you know, is calling up CEOs and saying, hey, how is Seth as a board member or advisor, right? I mean, you know, what, how important is being part of the Foundry Network? Um, and, and we encourage that, right? Because we think we, think we give good advice and, and, um, and we think our network is really powerful. Um, and I would say that true as well for our uh, partner funds, for the for the venture, other venture funds that we've invested in. Um, but in terms of like the math of the number of deals we see, we see, I'm going to say about 5,000 investment opportunities a year. We probably take some level of meeting with 300 of them. Of the 300, there's in the last market, probably all of them ended up getting financed, but probably 150 were like, venture financeable, like they should get venture financing and we do about 10 a year. So that's kind of what our funnel looks like. Wow. Um, so it's a pretty steep funnel. Um, and then of course we spend a lot of time really um, methodically working through our portfolio, the existing portfolio, the companies that we have investments in, helping them figure out. I mean, typically there's like in the life of a company, there's a few Sort of pivotal moments that could be a product decision, that could be a key customer, that could be a key hire. It often is a key hire. Um, that could be a key introduction to another uh, capital provider. Um, but we try to be pretty explicit about that because it's like the day to day stuff is important and, and is helpful. And I like to be a sounding board for for my companies. But at the end of the day, there's probably somewhere between three and you know five moments in every company's life that really, really made the difference. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the keys is understanding when you're at one of those moments and being present for that moment, right? Because that's that's what's most impactful for these businesses. And again, there's a little bit of that that just comes with some experience um, and sort of being able to recognize that. And then of course, obviously the networks that come from, from you, having that experience. Do you have maybe an example, and I'm putting you on the spot, so if, if you don't sure. have this example now, but uh, of maybe describing a key learning, like, you know, early in my venture career, you know, I missed a couple of these opportunities. And now in retrospect, I've identified when this kind of problem comes up, here's, that's when I know I need to, to perk up and pay attention or, yeah, I'm really just trying to dig into the learnings. Like what's something sure. you maybe did before and you've now have a new perspective on it given your experience. 
Um, we have a couple cases where there were companies that we made an offer to. They wanted, let's say, 15, 20% more in terms of valuation. And we ended up sort of not coming to terms. And I, I, you know, you don't make money on the margin in venture, you make it on the bigger outcomes. So now 50%, 100% difference in valuation, of course, that stuff matters. Um, but I've regretted a couple of those. We missed out on some, some stuff that I obviously wish we had been one in particular that we just like this close and we we should have just we should have just bridged the gap and we didn't um and so that was a that was a key learning um i've had a number of companies early early on one in particular that hurts just because i was i co-founded the business um i knew we didn't have our sales process figured out and the the ceo thought that we did and and ramped up the burn and it took me too long to say this isn't like this isn't working. We're wasting wasting money, and I think that that business would have been successful if we had, if we could have gone back in time and not have wasted that you know five million dollars or whatever it was that we had spent trying to ramp up sales way before we were ready to do it. Um, but I didn't feel at the time like I I kind of kind of knew it, but I didn't it didn't really know it. And that is and, and that has that particular experience just because it, it hurt so bad. And that company went to zero, right? We lost our money on that. And again, I co-founded that business. So I was, I was super proud of it. Um, I, I think about that a lot when I'm in other situations. Like I never want to let that happen again. Um, so those are a couple of examples of that. Um, I've had a, a few other examples where it's been really clear that we had the wrong executive in X position, but I got convinced either by another board member or by the CEO that now isn't the right time or, you know, for all sorts of different reasons. Um, and early on in my career, I would kind of let that slide. And I I've almost 100% of the time regretted that, right? Once you know, you know. And I've had one or two instances, and again, I don't do this anymore, but where even at the CEO level, I felt like this isn't the right person to run the business. But again, early in my career, let it slide a little bit because of some other external reason. Um, and and I don't, I mean, again, these are rarer cases because we're not in the business of swapping out CEOs on a regular yeah. basis, but it does happen every once in a while. Um, and I think being declarative about that. Um, and I've realized you can have conversations with people that are difficult, that it's fine, right? And I, again, early on in my career, I think I shied away from that a little bit. Um, I've had a couple recently where someone, these weren't like having to fire CEO type situations, but these are where I, can't remember the exact last one, but it was it was some uncomfortable conversation with another investor, or one was another board member, um, and uh, and the CEO was like, you know, or the other some of the other board members were like, oh, thank you for doing that. I was like, it's not a big deal, like it's okay, like the conflict isn't bad. I don't dislike the person. It's not about that. It's just like this is part of the job. Um, and again, I think that that earlier in my career, I was more likely to kind of shy away or maybe take more time. And do we really need to do this? And now I'm just like, absolutely. I'm, I will make that call. That's part of my job. So if I'm investing as an LP into a fund with a professional manager, such as yourself, I should be looking for uh, people that have had some of these experiences can maybe talk to me about the nuances, about uh, someone who can influence and make change in their portfolio, the investments that they're investing in. Otherwise, why pay for a manager? Absolutely. I'd ask them the following questions. How do you attract deal flow, right? What's your fly trap or your, or your, we talk sometimes about proprietary deal flow. I think that's kind of a misnomer. Like there are lots of, lots of deals get seen by lots of VCs. 
why are you seeing deals that are are good deals and why do people choose you over the other options right because there there are other options out there so that's the first thing i'd ask second thing i ask is what's their portfolio construction strategy how much money do you invest at what stage um and how do you follow on how do you think about that and how many companies will be in your portfolio um, I tend to favor portfolios that are slightly more diversified, not won't surprise you based on other answers I've given, uh, again, for early stage, um, and and a very deliberate portfolio strategy, right? And we often say your fund size is your portfolio strategy, right? So you, you the, the fund size needs to map up to your portfolio strategy. Um, so those are key questions going in. And then I'd ask, tell me about how you work with companies. Do you take board seats, yes or no? How do you, how do you influence uh, companies and, uh, you know, in decision-making? Give me some examples of, times when you faced a difficult decision with a portfolio company and how you decided what to do. Those are the types of types of questions that you I think you want to ask. And then the, the last two questions are around capital formation. Tell me about your relationships with downstream capital, because when you're particularly an earlier stage investor, but sort of no matter where you are at the stack, like if you're a seed stage investor, your job is to help find the Series A investor. If you're a Series A investor, your job is to help find the Series B investor and so on. Um, so actually sort of testing that a little bit and then doing due diligence on and talking to some of the downstream capital partners. Hey, how do you feel when Sally from Acme Ventures calls you? How's that signal, right? How do you, how have you felt about the deal flow that, that she's been sending you? I think that's really important. And then the last thing is, um, do you help on exits? That may not be as relevant if you're looking at an early, early stage company, right? Because early stage fund, because they're, by the time the company gets to exit, that's not really sort of their, they're not in, in the mix of companies, right? I mean, ultimately they need to be focused on their sweet spot, which is earlier stage, helping companies get from zero to one or, or seed stage to, to series A, however you want to describe it. Um, but certainly if they're series A or beyond investors, how do you help companies uh, with exits. And if they're early investors, how do you think about exits, right? Because for early stage investors, there are oftentimes opportunities to take money off the table before the company gets sold. Um, and we strongly encourage our managers to figure out intermediate points at which to take money off the table. And it's interesting to hear people talk about that because the truth is the job of an early stage manager or even a series A manager isn't to sell at the absolute top of the market the job is to manage the risk profile of, of each individual investment. And we had this a lot in the 2020 timeframe where I would speak to uh, invest uh, other managers that we work with and strongly encourage them to take money out of whatever company it was because they were doing a, a, that company was doing a round and there was an opportunity for secondary. And, and sometimes they would push back and be like, no, 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 I think this is my best portfolio company. I'd say, that's great. But your job isn't to maximize, isn't to take out the last dollar that you can take out. Your job is to manage this portfolio and the risk associated with it. And it's funny to look back on that. I can think of two in particular situations where I really pushed hard and the managers did take meaningful money out. And by the way, they were still having huge upside because they still had plenty more uh, uh, interest in the company. And in both those cases, and one of the, one of the cases, I think the company's going to be worthless. Um, and so they will be amongst the only people that ended up getting to take money off the table. And in the other case, the company is probably still going to be worth something, but is, uh, but really faltered. Right. And, and, uh, and looking back, uh, that investor said to me, Hey, I wish I had even taken more if I had the opportunity yet, but he had he took the maximum amount that he was able so, to. So, so am I just, but that's important. Am I just talking to a bunch of people like you? So like, let's say I've decided VC's cool. I, I want in on VC. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh and then i you know want to invest in three different funds and so i talk to i don't know 30 different fund managers like you and then i i figure out whose 
philosophy I like the most, who I resonate with. Maybe like, oh, I decide I want an early, a mid, and a late stage. And so I find three. Like, how do I pick? How do I pick? Yeah. Well, so for sure, it's probably more than three. Because again, you're going to want some multiple vintages. So you're going to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allocate X dollars to venture. Uh, and you're going to at least chop it into thirds and invest it over three years, right? So at least, right? Ideally, it's maybe even over a longer period of time because you want meaningful vintage, vintage exposure. Um, so I'd start with that. Um, and I think a venture is sort of an evergreen thing, but the right way for an investor to think about it is it takes about seven to eight years for the average in, uh, venture fund to return the original investment back to you. So if you're thinking about making a commitment of whatever, $10 million, over seven or eight years, you'll get that $10 million back and then you can reinvest it. But that's how you should be thinking about it. And obviously, you're going to get profits on top of that. So you know, hopefully you're making many times your money on that. Um, but I think that's an important thing to think about as you think about uh, kind of working through that portfolio. And then I don't know that there's... I don't know that there's magic in terms of which individual funds you pick. I think it's a lot around, I mean, one, getting advice from people who know what they're doing like you guys. Um, but it's also around um, meeting with a bunch of managers, getting a sense for who philosophically is aligned, who is investing in an area that you care about, right? When you're at a cocktail party and you're telling your buddies, hey, you know, oh yeah, I've, I've got some exposure to, you know, this type of business or this sector, like, what sectors do you want to be able to talk about, right? And, and if you don't, then that's fine too. But, but you know, there's nothing wrong with sort of saying, hey, I've got an affinity to this sort of thing. So I want to invest in managers that are going to invest in that. Um, I don't know that there's any magic to diversifying stage. I think if you just, if you have more of a passion for early stage, great, invest in early stage venture funds, right? If you've got more of a uh, passion for mid-stage, fine, invest in mid-stage venture funds, right? Now there's more upside opportunity with earlier stage uh, funds, so keep that in mind in terms of how you construct that portfolio. But I don't think there's that doesn't become formulaic. I think that just becomes what interests you the most. Love it. Okay. Why okay. not have fun with your investment dollars, right? Yeah. Like I feel <laughs> yeah. like, I mean, if you got to the point where you're ready to invest in venture, like you've already been successful at something. Right. Uh, and so why not have fun with it and be like, hey, no, I want to enjoy this, right? I wanna, I want this to be a non-stressful, really fun, let's, you know. Let's go make some money, but also invest in things that are that are interesting. And I am, I and I have a, a personally pretty large portfolio of venture investments that we've made um, either before Foundry became a, a institutional investor investing in other funds, because now I'm not able to do that quite so directly, or uh, international funds which are outside of our scope, um, because I'm passionate about it, and it's done really well for me from a financial perspective. But I think about it less from that perspective and more from a uh, perspective of like, what, what's been interesting to me or me and my wife? I like that. Yeah, and I, and I enjoy it and we enjoy it together, right? I mean, you know, we, uh, you know, oftentimes we'll talk about this, you know, hey, I wanna do this thing or she wants to do this thing. And it's, you know, like, great, let's like, why is that interesting? And um, awesome, let's, 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 let's do it. Um, and so that's been fun for us together as a couple as well. And I think, you know, again, it should be fun. Investing in venture shouldn't be stressful. Investing yeah. in alternatives shouldn't be stressful. Sure. For founders specifically, what has been kind of your guys' secret sauce for your success? Well, I could tell you, but then we'd have to end the podcast. <laughs> we'd have to, we'd end the <laughs> kidding. No, I mean, look, we, I think it's, it's sort of who we are. And I'm going to, I give Brad, my partner, Brad Feld, a lot of credit because um, we started, uh, so there were four of us who started Foundry together. And we were all equal partners. And, and I give Brad a huge amount of credit to that because we were like 
three juniorish people right. <laughs> and Brad uh, when we started. Um, and he certainly didn't need to uh, to do what he did with us. Um, but I think that from the very beginning, and I think it helped that we were in Boulder, Colorado, which was a very nascent venture market, um, and that we were willing to work really hard. But we we always had this sort of set of values around giving first, around participating in the ecosystem, around not taking credit where it wasn't due, and generally speaking, not even taking credit when it was due, um, and being very founder first, entrepreneur friendly, um, and having fun together. And I think that that's, those were the ingredients for us, but working really hard, like really hard, really scrappy. Um, and those were the ingredients for us that, you know, helped us create this like incredible platform. And when we started Foundry, we were, the initial fund target was 175 million, this is 2006. Almost didn't get raised. We almost, almost just didn't happen, right? There weren't really emerging managers back then. It was really, it was really hard to raise. Um, but we managed to raise that first fund. It actually ended up being $225 million. We sort of went from a point of like not being able to raise money to all of a sudden we had a couple of big yeses. And then, you know, people were like, yes, I want to invest. Uh, and uh, so we raised $225 million. So that was back in 2007 when we raised that first fund. And now Foundry manages $4.3 billion. Like it's almost, it's almost impossible for me to describe to you how implausible that number sounds to me, even sitting here today. Um, let alone if I could have gone back to myself, particularly there was a moment that was kind of like May of 2007, we'd been fundraising for, for a few months and I was pretty sure it wasn't going to happen. I had, I had committed my life savings to Foundry um, because it was, you know, there was legal cost, all sorts of startup costs just to raising the fund. And I remember very vividly kind of coming home, talking to my wife about it being like, yeah, I don't think this is happening. Like I'm going to go have to go find another job. Wow. Um, and so like to, to, to think about like that point, to, you know, to be able to go back in time and say to that person, uh, hey, in, you know, 15 years time, you're going to have $4.3 billion mm -hmm. under management and all these funds and this, you know, massive network and, and all these companies that you've invested in, like, it, it almost seems impossible to think about it now. Wow. That's such a cool story. Yeah. Go back and say you're all, well, I mean, we've known each other for a while. And actually, I think you've had the most influence on, on me personally. Um, I think when you get into venture, you learn all these ways you can kind of structure deals that are to the advantage of the investor. And very early on, we would talk about these deals and, you know, you would give the advice. It's got to be win-win. You know, if you have that term, it's double dipping. The point is not to, like you said, make the most margin on the deal. Um, and I really like it's I've really appreciate that more and more as my career is, has moved on, right? Where I realize, like, actually, if you think about it, the worst thing that could happen is you, you manipulate a deal to where you get into it and you have some unfavorable to the entrepreneur upside. They're successful. You're all successful, but now they have a platform and they tell everybody, you don't want to work with this person. Yeah, you got to play long-term right. games with long-term people. Exactly. And and um and I think that's the beauty of venture is it is a team sport. And if you're grab if you gravitate towards team sports, then it's a beautiful place to be and a and a great place to invest. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. It's a long Pascal just said it's a long-term effort, right? right. I think you really need to as a as a VC and as an investor embrace long-term relationships. Sure. Yeah, same thing as an LP and investing in, you know, I want to I think uh you know, I've just had a couple conversations with uh, friends over the weekend who've invested in a couple funds, and uh, also uh, with this long-term games, long-term people mindset of when things aren't going well, to make sure that you're constantly communicating with your investors and you're not leaving people in the dark. And 
uh, I, I'm finding that there's a lot of short-term thinking uh, happening right now. And so, well, and we're, I mean, as we're taping this, we're, we're, we're a week and a half past the sort of the, the SVB Silicon Valley bank blow up, which is the bank that, that banks probably half of uh, startups and probably two thirds of venture funds. And it, it almost, you know, blew up a huge amount of capital in Silicon Valley. Uh, fortunately it didn't. And, um, you know, I think that crisis reveals you not, it doesn't, doesn't create you. It reveals you, right. It reveals your true character. Mm. And, um, and I think that th this is an example of a crisis that was a systemic crisis, but individual companies go through crisis moments all the time. Right. Um, and so how you behave in those moments is, is really important to, um, the type of, of, uh, person that you are, the type of investor that you'll be, and and the relationships that you have with your portfolio companies, and I think that that that's what creates sort of long term reputational value in the market is you know not how you do when things are up to the right, right when things are doing great, um, but what how do you handle moments of crises? And I think that um, I think that there are some VCs that forget about that, which is why it's important to have help when you're kind of looking at what managers to to, to invest in. But I think by and large, most VCs are pretty good at kind of managing through crises, right? And I think we just saw this in, in this last couple of weeks where um, none of us had ever lived through, hey, what happens if all of our deposits go away kind of thing. <laughs> right. yeah. And we, Foundry, Foundry's portfolio companies had a huge exposure. Foundry itself had a big exposure, right? We have our, our banking relationship with SVB. And, um, and I think that people actually, by and large, not totally, I think the industry has some blame here, but by and large, um, at least in our universe, people acted with, uh, with calm, with uh, sort of a sense of like, what's most important, we're working on our portfolio companies, right? It's not about the money that we had in the bank that might be gone. We, we need to solve the problem first with our portfolio companies, and then we'll deal with that later. Um, now, the Valley as a whole, perhaps a little less so. I mean, it's sort of one of these, like, it could have been an unavoidable crisis, um, certainly was from my perspective, SVB was mismanaged. And I think that's a challenge. Um, and that's on them, not on, on the venture community, but then the venture community rushed to pull their money out in a way that I think if they hadn't, I think SVB would have been totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that is what it is. It's just too bad. And, um, that, that wasn't what we did. Like we, you know, we had a moment where we thought about like, Hey, should we just pull our cash? And, um, and we said, no, like, let's not be a part of the problem here. We, we believe there will be a solution. And, you know, there might've been a moment over the weekend, uh, when it looked like we might lose that money where I was like, oh, well, uh, you know, yeah. really awesome to be altruistic. Right. Great to have right. the Fed wait until Sunday yeah. night. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Waited as long as, as possible. possible. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But we were, I mean, look, we were, uh, the, you know, my partners and I were like figuring out how can we use personal money to backstop, you know, company, cause companies, it happened to happen on a, you know, Monday was the 13th, right? The 15th is a payroll date for most companies. And so we had a bunch of companies and it typically would need to be funded at least two days before. So we had a lot of companies that needed to fund payroll on the 13th. Some of them had assets spread out enough. They were able to do that. But a lot of them had concentrated uh, banking relationships because when you had debt, and this was the case for Foundry, we used capital call lines to balance uh, sort of cash needs. And so we were required to keep all our money at SVU because we had these cap call lines. And so we spent the weekend trying to figure out like, how do we help some of these companies out that you know can't make payroll on Monday? Um, I was happy that we didn't have to do that, but um, yeah, that was that was uh, that was an interesting uh, it was an interesting um, observation about sort of how people uh, act. And we definitely had boards where you know we, there was a little bit of hysteria, and we had to kind of calm some things down. But by and large, I think most VCs kind of acted in a in a at least in our universe acted in a pretty um, measured manner. Do you think that's going to have an effect, Seth, on? how venture funds 
and venture fund portfolio companies bank in the future? Absolutely. I, the, there, there will no longer be agreements that, uh, you know, we won't sign agreements that require us to keep all our money in a single bank. Like that's not going to happen. Um, so there's going to be at least some flexibility around that. Um, but wait, what if the Fed comes out and says they insure 100 percent of deposits? <laughs> I mean, the Fed should come out and say that. Yeah, probably, I right? agree. Because uh, it can't be that just the G, excuse me, G SIBs are the only banks that are safe. Like we don't want to have all of our money sitting in G SIBs. The globally, sorry, yeah, acronyms. I promise not to use them. Uh, the under Dodd Frank, we created this class of banks that were too big to fail. We called them the globally systemically important banks, G SIBs, um, and those are like J P Morgan, sure. D of A, Wells, uh, City, um, and. And, you know, all the banks below that were not really guaranteed by the Fed, right? Now, the Fed, the FDIC wasn't guaranteeing deposit at the GSIBs, but the Fed was saying we won't let these banks fail, which is the same thing. Right. Um, and so I think we need to think about how we manage sort of these banking. There's a great exchange between Janet Yellen and the senator from, I think it was Oklahoma, who was saying, hey, are you going to back the deposits at the, you know, Oklahoma City uh, you know, savings and thrift. I watched that. Yeah. And she was like, well, no, you know, it's case by case or whatever, whatever. And she's like, well, what uh, the, sorry, he said, the Senator said, well, how should I tell my constituents that they should keep their money there? Right. Instead of going to one of the big, big totally. banks. And by the way, this bank is really important to my region. I don't want to see it go away. What is the fed going to do? And she didn't have an answer because she's not a policymaker, right? She implements policy. Um, but I think that the, the, I hope the senators and the uh, members of Congress that were listening uh, are thinking about that because they need to do something. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be really interesting. I mean, I mean that's maybe another diligence question for an LP now, um, that didn't even exist yeah, right. before a week and a half ago. It was like, not even, not even a question. Yeah. Tell ask. me about your banking relationships. Right. And yeah. How do you manage <laughs> risk? Yeah. By the way, there's also ways to manage risk, risk within banks, right? Because there's, there are products that allow you to spread your cash around and get, take advantage of a larger, uh, sort of insurance, uh, value, if you will, from the FDIC, not because the FDIC limits go up, but because you end up in multiple accounts. And so, right. you know, people weren't thinking about that, but it turns out when you put money in a bank, you're not putting it in a vault. You are, you are a lender to the bank. Um, and if your bank makes stupid decisions with their assets, like SVB did, they can get in trouble and get in trouble pretty quickly. And we, I don't think we focused on just how thinly capitalized most banks are. Even SVB, 16th largest bank in the country, $200 billion in assets, their equity slice was like $10 billion. So if you have $2 billion, $200 billion worth of assets, and that's what you think those assets are worth. That's not exactly what they're worth. Right. And if you're off by 5%, then you have no equity. Right. And if you're off by 15%, which is what SVB was off by, at least, then you have negative equity. And that's what happened. Right. And they probably could have survived. Uh, they had, my understanding is they their fundraise that they were trying to do was actually fully subscribed for. Um, but- uh, people pulled their deposits out and they couldn't survive that. Too late. Yeah. yeah, it was too late. Yeah. Well, it's been super, super fascinating. Thanks for being on our show. Yeah, thanks for joining us on the show, Seth. Thanks really for having me, guys. It. I yeah. appreciate it. All right.